Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Uh, we had a nice week in Seattle. Never been in that uh, area of the country before and just had an awesome time. I just got in late last night and uh, we're ready to go today, though. Happy to be back worshiping with you all. And uh, thanks to Cecil Price for covering me last week. I'm sure that you all were blessed by him. Uh, he's been here in the past and uh, always a good friend of the church. So we're, we're thankful for Cecil and his ministry. Well, today, uh, having finished uh, Samson, the life of Samson, we're going to begin a new study in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And if that uh, is something that you're not quite familiar with, or maybe you haven't spent a whole lot of time in Ezra and Nehemiah lately, that's a good thing. Uh, we're going to learn and uh, learn what lessons uh, the Lord has from us uh, from uh, these two great books. And so uh, we'll start uh, with the book of Ezra today. We'll be looking at Ezra chapter 1 and 2. Uh, Yes, I can do it, and you'll be amazed. <laughs> Before we do that, uh, let's go seek the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you. Uh, we just thank you for this church, Lord, for all the people in it, uh, for everybody who uh, helps make this church uh, go, Lord. And uh, Lord, we're just so thankful for uh, the ministry of everybody here, Lord. Everybody here is engaged in something uh, to, to help this body and to further the cause of this church and the cause of Christ, Lord, and we're so thankful. Lord, as we come to a new book, a new study in the Bible uh, this week, Lord, we just ask your blessings. Uh, Ezra is from a mysterious time to us a long time ago, and uh, Lord, just help us to learn the lessons that you have for us from that uh, book, and uh, Lord, we just submit our time to you this morning. We uh, praise you, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit now would come and illuminate the word for us, help us to understand what it is that you have for us today, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been following the news for the past couple of weeks, you know that this uh, story of Gabby Petito has just been dominating the headlines over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, she and her boyfriend, uh, Brian Laundrie, began in Florida, and they took a cross-country trip, I think headed for the West Coast, uh, and apparently they got in a fight along the way, uh, and Brian returned to Florida by himself on September 1st. Now, that raised suspicions after Gabby didn't come back after a little while, and uh, so they started to investigate, and Gabby's body was found in Wyoming on September 18th. Now, as you know, Brian Laundrie is you know, America's most wanted man right now. He's wanted for questioning, uh, and yet they can't find him. Two plus weeks now, and Brian Laundrie uh, is missing. A massive manhunt is underway. Uh, and this is a tragic loss of life uh, for this girl, and, and I know uh, that he is presumed innocent, uh, but there's a lot of smoke here, uh, and so uh, we're just concerned uh, about uh, what may have become of this girl. And so uh, when I think about this story and think about the countless senseless crimes that happen in our country all the time, the thought that comes to my mind is, uh, what's wrong with people? How can people do such horrible things to each other? And of course, that's an extreme example, right? Uh, Gabby Petito, is, uh, it happens every day, of course, but it doesn't happen uh, hundreds and thousands of times every day, at least I hope it doesn't. Uh, but the, the question, what's wrong with people, is a question that you and I ask all the time. I know when, when I'm driving, for example, when people make left-hand turns from the right-hand lane, I say, what's wrong with you? And when they go 25 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour zone, the same thing. What's wrong with people? Why can't they obey the traffic laws, at least the way I do? So uh, it's easy, <laughs> easy for us uh, to look at other people and ask, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? What's wrong with these people? 
And yet, uh, if we really want to change the world, if we really want revival in our country, uh, if we really want the Lord to, to do his work, uh, it's going to happen through us. So the question is not what's wrong with them. The question is what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? Our world is broken, and if we're going to see revival, if we're going to fix it, it doesn't start with them. It doesn't start with the people outside the church, right? It starts with us. It starts with the people inside the church. And so we're going to see that principle in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the plan is we're going to study Ezra for the next seven weeks, which will take us right up until Advent. Uh, Then we'll do the Advent series, and then we will do Nehemiah starting uh, in the new year. Uh, And so I chose these books because I just think they're incredibly relevant to our day today. Uh, So before we jump into Ezra, let's kind of place it in its historical context so we know the kind of time frame that we're talking about, what's going on. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we just finished up the life of Samson. Now that happens before King David, so it's before 1000 BC. The dating is somewhere probably around 1100 or so. So that's five or 600 years now before the events of the book of Ezra. And after Samson, Samuel began his ministry, you'll recall that. Uh, And then uh, Samuel appointed Saul as king, uh, and then David succeeded him, and Solomon succeeded him. So these are the glory days of Israel in the the century of 1,000 to 900 or so BC, when David and uh, Solomon had built uh, Israel into this uh, gigantic uh, world power that it was. But after Solomon's death, we know that the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, And that uh, there there was a period of moral decline. And then uh, what happened was to the northern kingdom, Assyria came and uh, exiled the northern kingdom of Assyria, uh, of, I'm sorry, Israel to Assyria. Uh, And then that caused the people of Judah to look up north and say, whoa, we don't want that to happen to us. So they repented for a bit of time under Hezekiah and Josiah, but it didn't last. And when we read the end of the book of, uh, of Second Chronicles, we, we read about the evil reigns of King Manasseh and Amon and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And they had worshipped idols and they were wicked kings. Uh, and they, they did all kinds of evil in the sight of, of the Lord, uh, even in the face of these prophets who God mercifully sent to warn them that God's judgment was coming. Uh, if they did not repent. And so we read these kings doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we say, what's wrong with them? These are the people of God. Why can't they learn? How do they make the same mistakes over and over again? And so God judged Judah uh, through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were wicked, of course, and God promised that he would judge the Babylonians too. But God judged his people, his own people, for failing to be holy as God called them to be. And so the question for us is, will God treat us any differently? Now, uh, speaking now on a wider level outside the church, talking about our country, uh, our country, as we know, has ignored God and his word. We've removed him from the public square. We've ridiculed him, we've mocked him, we've enacted laws that are antithetical to everything that God believes in and stands for. And uh, it seems like the, the culture doesn't even blink anymore, doesn't blush anymore about some of the immorality that goes on. And God doesn't even seem to cross the minds of our leaders who are in power today. And so what we see is that our culture has moved on uh, from uh, God and his truth. And so we believers are, as always, we are exiles. We are aliens and strangers living in a foreign land, uh, in a land that holds different ideas uh, from what God's ideals are and what Christians believe. And and we've been living that way for years, decades, in fact. 
And yet still, God calls Christians to be holy. So how should we live in a society that has forgotten God? And we'll look for answers in Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we're going to see is that uh, the people in that day, they humbled themselves when they were in exile and they sought the Lord. You know, conquest and exile in a foreign land for decades will do that to you. And so they recognized their sin. They began to humble themselves. They began to turn back to God. And though there was plenty wrong with the world uh, of that day, uh, the question that they asked was, what's wrong with us? Uh, how can we repent of our sin? Uh, how should we prioritize God and worship him properly? How can we maintain our purity in a wicked world? And these are the very same questions that you and I should be asking ourselves. Now, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra cover about 100 years, and this runs from about, say, 538 B.C. to about 444 uh, and following when Nehemiah uh, came to rebuild the walls. So uh, from 538, that was the, uh, the, the day or the year when the Jews returned to Jerusalem. And they returned in three waves. Ezra's, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 covers the first wave of the exiles returning from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they came with Zerubbabel in 538. And so he rebuilt the temple from 538 to about 516, 515. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied during those years. And then after about 80 years or so, then Ezra comes onto the scene. He's the author of the book, but he doesn't make his appearance until chapter 7 with the second wave of exiles who come back to Jerusalem. And Ezra reformed their uh, way of worship and reestablished their purity. And then Nehemiah came about 445, 444, <clears throat> and he rebuilt the walls of the city. And what we're going to see is that every step of the way uh, that these Jews were trying to rebuild their city, rebuild their walls, rebuild the temple, uh, they faced opposition every step of the way. And we'll see that it was very difficult for them to succeed, and they could only do it uh, by living for God in a world that opposes God. And what we learn throughout Ezra and in Nehemiah is that if the people of God are going to have success living for God, this requires uh, exceeding humility. It requires strong leadership, reverence for God, a love of God's word, prayer, a proper worship, a desire for purity and dependence on God's strength. Uh, all those qualities were happening back in that day. And 2,500 years later, nothing has changed. We still need all of those things in a world that opposes God and opposes Christians. So today we're going to go through chapters 1 and chapter 2, but we're going to spend most of our time uh, in the first part of chapter 1. Uh, so first thing we see is that God sovereignly stirred Cyrus's spirit. And we had the verses read to us, and so the first question that pops into my mind is, isn't it surprising? Is it surprising to you that God uses a pagan king to accomplish his purposes? And what we see right off the bat here is that the sovereignty of God is forefront. It's, it's put right in the beginning of the story so that we can't miss it. God planned out Cyrus's rise to power, and, and he planned out how he was going to use Cyrus to free God's people. Well, let's talk about this Cyrus for a minute. How did he rise to power to begin with? 
You remember the story of Daniel chapter 5, known as the handwriting on the wall story, right? Uh, this was the year 539, and Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, was now king of Babylon. Uh, God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar, remember, in chapter 4, which is going back a few decades, uh, making Nebuchadnezzar eat grass like a beast of the field until Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and praised the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson. He honored God, revered God, but Belshazzar did not. Those lessons did not carry down to future generations. And so Belshazzar threw wild parties. And one night in the middle of a drunken feast, Belshazzar gets this great idea. Let's, let's pull out all those relics from the temple that, we, that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Israel. And let's drink from those, uh, those relics and those uh, cups and, and, and dishes and everything else that they had. And it was then that the handwriting appeared on the wall, just a hand writing on a wall. And that, the, the, the hand paralyzed Belshazzar because he was so afraid. And God wrote on the wall with that hand, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and been found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided among the Medes and the Persians. And so that very night, uh, the Persians conquered Babylon. Now Cyrus, who had already been king of Persia for about 20 years or so, uh, now he, in, he inherited all the Jews and all the other peoples that the Babylonians had conquered. Uh, and so Cyrus's kingdom was massive. Uh, this is about the size of his kingdom. You see that it extends from Africa all the way through Asia, a massive kingdom. And when we think about Cyrus, what we have here in Ezra is not the first mention of Cyrus in the Bible. In fact, a century before Cyrus came to power, Isaiah prophesied about him. And this is what's so amazing. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. This is the, what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed. And then verse 13, I have stirred in him righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of armies. Now, is that an incredible thing to have happen, to have this prophecy a hundred years before Cyrus even came to power? Isaiah called Cyrus the Lord's anointed. That's a very special word in Hebrew. Saul and David are both called the Lord's anointed. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. And so here is uh, a Cyrus being called uh, the Messiah or the anointed one by uh, Isaiah. So Isaiah prophesied that, that uh, the Lord would choose a, a pagan king and would do an incredible thing by anointing him with the Holy Spirit for a period of time to fulfill God's specific purposes. But that's not all. Jeremiah talked about this time period too. Seventy years they would spend in exile, and here is how Jeremiah predicted that it would happen. He said, this entire land, speaking of Jerusalem, will be a place of ruins and an object of horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, and then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their wrongdoing and for the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So here's the mention of the 70 years. <clears throat> and in case we didn't catch it in Jeremiah 25, he mentions it again in Jeremiah 29, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. <clears throat> now, Daniel, 
went with the first wave of exiles to Babylon in 605. And he was a teenager at the time. So he had spent his entire life in Babylon um, <clears throat> under uh, exile and under Babylonian rule. And he had the book of Jeremiah, so he knew that the 70-year time period was coming to an end. Now, this is toward the end of Daniel's life, where in Daniel 9, he prays, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, and all the people of the land. So Daniel knew the time was coming to an end, and so he confesses the sins of the nation, and he sought the Lord for himself and for the people of Israel. And it seems as though God heard. God was about to end Judah's captivity just as he promised through the prophets Jeremiah, or through the prophet Jeremiah. And so the question now, the 70 years, is when does the clock start? Uh, and this is something that has uh, gotten scholars arguing with each other a little bit. Uh, one of the commentaries I've read, and, and this is a, a pretty good uh, counting of the time, uh, makes the calculation like this. It starts the time with the first wave of exiles to Babylon, and that would be in 605. There were two more waves of exiles in 597 and 586. Uh, Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539. The first year, the first official year, would have been 538 then. Uh, would have taken the Jews a little bit of time to prepare. That takes us to 537, and it's a several-month walk from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So that's 536, so including both ends, 605 to 536, that's 70 years of exile. Another way to count the time is to say that they were in exile from the time that they didn't have a temple. The temple was destroyed in 586. The temple was completed in 516. Again, 70 years. So no matter how you count it, uh, it's incredible that the fulfillment of 70 years, not only once, but two separate ways you could count the fulfillment of 70 years. And, and it's, the, it's the fulfillment of prophecies like this that should give you and I such tremendous confidence in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah called Cyrus by name before he was even born and, and said what he was going to do, and Cyrus did it. I mean, that should blow our minds about the authority of Scripture and how we can trust it. God, God used a Persian king, a pagan, who worshipped other gods to fulfill his plan to have Israel spend exactly 70 years in exile. And so we see that, that God's word is true and that God is sovereign. And God stirred Cyrus to fulfill this prophecy. Well, how did he do that? Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Uh, he came on Cyrus for a particular reason, for a particular time, to serve this particular purpose. Now, what's interesting is that the first century historian, Josephus, says that Cyrus had actually seen a copy of this prophecy in Jeremiah. And if that's true, it's probable that Daniel is the one who showed it to him. And so Cyrus may have read this prophecy and saw the greatness of God and was eager to fulfill that prophecy. And so he issued a decree. And he issued that decree in writing, and that's going to be very important in about 20 years' time in Ezra chapter 6 when there's a dispute about whether they're allowed to build or not. Uh, when we read Ezra's decree, it almost makes him sound like he's a believer, right? He uses some great language uh, talking about God, the God of Jerusalem. Uh, but in his thinking, he is just the God of Jerusalem. He's, he's a God among other gods. 
Uh, he's not a believer. He was a pagan, and this was a political move. So Cyrus's strategy was to respect the customs of the peoples that he had conquered, uh, and he allowed them to worship their own gods. It wasn't just the Jews. It was all the other people that he conquered as well. Cyrus released them to go home as well, too. And his strategy was uh, to make nice with these people so that they would return to their countries, the furthest reaches of the kingdom. They'd pay their taxes. They'd behave themselves. They wouldn't rebel against the kingdom, uh, and they would be loyal to him. But even more important than that was that he wanted the people that he set free to have their gods pray to Cyrus's gods for long life and prosperity for Cyrus. One great archaeological discovery is called the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, which was written in 538 BC, which records Cyrus's defeat of Babylon. Looks like an ear of corn, doesn't it? Uh, but this is written in Akkadian cuneiform, and all of those bumps along that thing, that's Akkadian cuneiform. And so this thing has been translated, and uh, what it shows is that uh, Cyrus worshipped other gods. Uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, what is it called? The, the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, it, it contains this language. It says, May the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities daily ask Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. So isn't that something that he recorded that right on this cylinder? It's been found, and so we can see what a pagan king he was. Uh, but the fact that he wanted other gods to pray to his god as though their gods were inferior to his gods uh, shows uh, what kind of a pagan he was. He didn't value the God of Israel. He was just the God of Jerusalem. But if maybe the Jews would implore that God to pray to his gods, well, maybe that would uh, result in long life for him. So this fulfills biblical prophecy. Uh, just like we saw in Samson's life. Remember when we were looking at Samson? Samson's motivation was all wrong, but at the same time, he was fulfilling God's desire for his life. And now we see the same thing here. Cyrus his motivation is all wrong. He wants other gods, excuse me, <clears throat> to pray to his God, but uh, he can fulfill God's purposes even though his motivation was wrong. So in verse 3, uh, we see that, that he says, whoever wants to go back, you're free to go back. So uh, the king didn't command that they go back, but he allowed whoever wanted to go back to go. And he also permitted them to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And of course, that's highly significant. Uh, this is where they worship. This is how they worship, through the sacrificial system. So the temple, uh, they had not had one for 70 years, and so they were unable to worship their God the way Moses commanded. And now they had permission uh, from the king to go back and build their temple, and they, they, were, they had support from him and to worship their God uh, through the sacrificial system. And verse 4 talks about how uh, they ought to be supported by the people uh, who, who uh, wanted to give to them. And that, that could refer to the people in Jerusalem when they got there or the people around uh, Babylon where they were before they went back. But Cyrus encouraged them to donate uh, so that the people would have enough resources uh, to support the cause of rebuilding the temple. And as we'll see, Cyrus himself is going to support uh, the Jewish rebuilding of the temple from his own uh, bank account. And so uh, with Cyrus's decree now, each Jewish person in exile has a decision to make. Am I going to stay or am I going to go back? Am I going to go back to this desolate land and help rebuild? And, and after 70 years, uh, many of these people had been in uh, Babylon now for three generations, and many of the other people had been born in Babylon. They di didn't know anything about Israel. So 
To give you an example, uh, my family has lived here in Texas for about 10 years now. And I consider myself a Texan. And my kids certainly consider themselves Texans over New Jerseyans. Uh, they went to colleges here, you know. I hope they get married here. I hope they settle here. Uh, now, their kids, that would be my grandchildren, what is the likelihood that they are going to feel some kind of special affinity for New Jersey and go back home again? I would say it's practically none, right? And that's where these Israelites find themselves now. Most of, the, most of the Jews in Babylon had never been to Israel. They had made comfortable lives for themselves uh, in Babylon. Uh, and they didn't even speak Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. Th those languages were lost to them. The, the trip is very long and it's dangerous. And it was much easier to stay than it was to return. And it's for that reason that it's, that it's probably the, mostly the poor and the outcasts who went back. The other people had established a life and they were thriving in Babylon. So uh, those are the ones who God chose who would go. And he also chose how he was going to provide for them. And so what we see uh, in this is that God is sovereign and he's always in control. He stirred the soul, the spirit of a, of a pagan king to be able uh, to do this. And now he's going to stir uh, the hearts of the people who he wants to go back to Israel. And so let's read <clears throat> verses 5 through 8. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites rose up, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those around them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with equipment, cattle, with valuables, aside from everything else that was given as a voluntary offering. And also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the leader of Judah. So we see that God is not only sovereign over the pagan king, he's sovereign over those whose hearts he will stir to go back to Israel, over those he wanted to return. And only a very small percentage of the people who were exiled to Babylon went back. And that's not to disparage the people who decided not to come back, because God is the one who chose who was going to go back. He stirred the spirits, and he also stirred the people who remained to be generous to those who were leaving. And so they gave articles of silver and gold and equipment and, and other valuables, and the Jews were going to need these to worship the Lord in his temple and to rebuild the temple. And then to top it all off, Cyrus brings out all of the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon. He gave them back this vast collection of dishes and cups and implements and bowls and, and other utensils that they would need to worship the Lord. Now, this is a momentous moment in Israel's history, right? For, for Cyrus, the pagan king, to give them back all of the stuff that was taken to them, from them and to head back to their homeland. It reminds us of the Jews plundering the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And so here's Cyrus, the most powerful man in the whole world, who frees the Jews and gives them back everything that had formerly been theirs. But these Jews had never even seen any of these items, right? They had been locked away in the palace for decades. Uh, and so it must have thrilled their hearts for the king uh, to bring these things out, to give them back to, to, to uh, the Jews and to uh, let them return all those things back to Israel and to their temple. 
Uh, verse 11 tells us that there were 5,400 articles uh, that were given back uh, of gold and silver. And so what the Jews saw was God fulfilling prophecy right before their very eyes. It happened right in front of their faces. Can you imagine having the prophecy of Jeremiah, counting out the time, and seeing God do something like that right before your eyes? I mean, what a faith booster that would have been for them. All right, so now let's meet the people who returned, turning to Ezra chapter 2. I'm not going to read all these names. I'm sure you're disappointed about that. Uh, and what we'll do, though, instead, is we're just going to do an overview of the people who returned. So those who God stirred to return. Uh, Ezra's account is very orderly. If we took the time to go through it uh, very individually, we would see that. But, but he separates people into, uh, first, their family names. And then uh, he mixes in their hometowns. And then he talks about people by their op occupation. Uh, some were priests, some were lay people. Uh, and so we see a very organized account of the people who return. So the first people he mentions are the leaders in verses 1 and 2. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see Zerubbabel. He is the leader. <clears throat> He's responsible for overseeing construction of the temple. Now, he was the grandson of Israel's king, uh, Jehoiakim, and so his lineage made him a natural leader. The other person mentioned there uh, is a priest, the high priest, called Jeshua, uh, called Joshua by Haggai and Zechariah. He's the high priest, and so he's Zechariah, or I'm sorry, Zerubbabel's partner in the reconstruction of the, of the temple. He's going to be the spiritual leader over these returnees. And there are, there are a few other people mentioned there. Uh, we would note the names Nehemiah and Mordecai. Uh, those names sound familiar to us, but those are not the Nehemiah and Mordecai of the books of uh, Esther and Nehemiah. Uh, they're just different people with the same name. So those are the leaders. Then next come the lay people, 35 verses of lay people. Uh, Ezra listed some by family name. Uh, for example, the sons of Parosh or the sons of Shephatiah. But then beginning in verse 21, he starts to mix in some geographical locations. There are people from uh, their hometown, like the men of Bethlehem and the men of Natofa. So we have all the lay people in those verses. Then we have priests and Levites, verses 36 to 42. Now, the Levites were uh, of the tribe of the Israelites who descended from Levi, of course. And the priests were Levites who were uh, commissioned, responsibility, had responsibility for certain aspects of temple worship. So all priests were to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Uh, and so the families of the priests, uh, they represented about only four of the 24 uh, divisions of the priesthood established by King David. Back in, in his day, uh, in 1 Chronicles 24, uh, David, uh, uh, he, he established 24 different divisions of priests. And here, we only have representatives from four of those divisions. Uh, and so we see that most of the priests stayed back in Babylon. And of all the Levites, only 372 Levites returned. So we just see that not very many people came. They had established themselves in Babylon. They were happy there. We see the temple servants and the servants of Solomon. This is verses 43 to 48. The temple servants means uh, the given or the dedicated ones. That's what that, that term means. And many of these names, if we were to read them, they're from non-Israelite descent. And many scholars think that these people are the descendants of the Gibeonites. Do you remember the men of Gibeah? 
from back in, in Joshua's day. Joshua was to wipe out all the Canaanite tribes, but the men of Gibeah tricked Joshua, uh, and they uh, talked Joshua into allowing them to live. And then when their secret became known, uh, Joshua didn't kill them, but he made them his servants. They were water carriers. Uh, they were uh, woodcutters. They had mundane jobs like that. And so this was the work that they were going to do in the reconstruction of the temple. Many of those weren't even Jews. And then there were others who could not prove their genealogy in verses 59 to 63. When they lived in Judah, inheriting the land was a simple matter of, of you take the property that your father owned, right? And you had already lived on the land, so it was no big deal to establish that you were the owner of the land. But during the exile, there was no land, and so they had to depend on genealogical records, and those are written records. And when you move, when you get exiled, records tend to get lost. And so some of them could not prove their relation to Israel. And that's a big problem if you want to participate in community life in Israel, if you want to intermarry with people, if you want to be part of the synagogue. And the Jews' desire for purity now was they were going to keep anyone out who could not establish their relationship to Israel. And so that was a big problem for people who could not prove their ancestry. Uh, there were three families of priests even who could not prove their heritage. And so they were allowed to go to Judah but they were not allowed to participate uh, in priestly functions until uh, the high priest determined uh, whether they were from the Isra Israel's lineage, uh, depending on uh, the casting of lots known as the Urim and the Thummim, which was an ancient sacred way of determining God's will. So what we see here is that the Jews con uh, they considered their purity, and they were taking it very seriously now, whereas in the past they hadn't. Uh, and so... Uh, we're going to see that throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that it was very important to the Jews that they maintain their purity from the other people. Now, incidentally, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, they're going to encounter the Samaritans, who are the people who were Jews who had intermarried and had children with the Assyrians, and so they had not kept their purity. And so we're going to have this conflict between the people who had maintained their purity and the people who had not, and that conflict will carry forth all the way into Jesus' day. And as we come to verses 64 to 70, we get the total number of people who returned. There were 42,360 plus another 7,300 servants. So roughly 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem in this first wave. And they're a motley crew, right? We've seen that they're probably the poor, probably the people who weren't doing well financially. Most of them, some of them were not even Israelites. And then there were these who can't even prove their ancestral heritage. So this is not the cream of the crop. These are the poor people who are going back. And yet, when they arrive in Jerusalem, they give of their free will offerings for the construction of the temple. And that shows that their hearts were right towards the Lord. And then they return to their city, to the city of their ancestors. So by God's sovereignty, by his protection, by his provision, the Jews were back in the land, at least a portion of them. And so what we see is that God always preserves a remnant. And for you and I, that's so important because when we think the world has gone nuts, and it has, God always preserves a remnant. And we, the church, are God's remnant. Uh, and so now uh, we've set the stage, all that's left to do, and it's, uh, it seems like a little thing, but it's not. The rebuilding of the temple, that is what is going to happen next. So we'll save that, uh, the starting of that process for next week. So let's think about a few applications uh, as we wrap this thing up. And the first is this, that humility is required for the rebirth of a nation. 
You know, God allowed uh, Babylon to exile Israel because of their pride, their spiritual pride and their arrogance. Before the exile, many Israelites wouldn't humble themselves to worship God. Uh, idolatry ran rampant, uh, and their failure to obey the law was, were just constant problems for them. And they continued to ignore the prophets that God had sent to warn them. And, you know, these are God's chosen people. Can you imagine their shock when the Babylonians come the third time and burn their temple to the ground? Can you imagine what that must have been like, that for, like for them as God's chosen people to see what their idolatry and their lack of purity caused? And so they're exiled, and God allowed them to suffer decades of exile uh, for their disobedience and pride. And now 70 years later, most of that generation had died off, <clears throat> but their descendants learned from their ancestors, uh, from, from their mistakes, and so they learned how to humble themselves. They humbled their hearts and returned to the Lord, and God then allowed them to return to the land. Now, if we are ever going to see revival in our country, if we are ever going to see our nation reborn spiritually, it's going to start with the humility of each one of us. It's easy to point outside the church and say, what's wrong with them? But the question we have to ask is, what's wrong with us? Are we committed to the Lord as God would have us be? One of the lessons of Ezra, the entire book of Ezra, is that we are to look inward and not outward. We're to examine ourselves and rededicate ourselves to the Lord. And when we do, the Lord will take note. He may even spark a revival uh, through the humility of his people. God's great promise in 2 Chronicles 7 is this. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, it starts with my people, God's people. That's us. That's the church. And so we have to look at our spiritual condition, the condition of our hearts. Are we proud? Do we worship the Lord properly? Is he the number one priority in our lives? Uh, answer the question honestly. It's a question that only you can answer for yourself and, and, and ask. Before we ask what's wrong with the world, let's ask what's wrong with us, you and I. Let's ask if we're being humble before the Lord. So humility is required for the rebirth of a nation. Next, don't be conformed to this world. You know, one of the reasons that God allowed this exile uh, was that they had been proud. But now that they've come back, uh, the, the, one of the reasons that God allows them to return is that they had learned. They had not conformed to Babylonian culture. And of course, they did assimilate in society. And, and you know, Daniel is, is evidence that, that you can obtain high government position. But he didn't intermarry with them, and he didn't adopt their gods. And so you can live with the people without adopting their practices. And the Jews had learned not to become absorbed into the pagan world, even though they had to live in it. And so instead, they, they, they remained holy as God called them to be. And that's a lesson for us, too. You know, the world around us wants us to conform to them, right? They want us to, to celebrate their behavior and their moral decay. Uh, and so we won't do that. But instead of asking what's wrong with them, again, we have to ask what's wrong with us and ask how God wants to fix us. Uh, God says, be holy, for I am holy. And so though we have to live in the world, we don't have to live like the world. You know, as Christians, we're real good at judging others, right? We're excellent at that, uh, maybe better than anything else. We love to judge other people. 
But I think we ought to judge ourselves. We ought to ask these questions. Let's be sure that we look different because Jesus looked different. And they hated him. They're going to hate us as well. But if we're going to be holy as God is holy, we have to look like Jesus. And revival can happen if we seek the Lord wholeheartedly. And we're going to see that Ezra and Nehemiah are all about revival. And finally, don't lose heart. Think about Israel. What hope did they have in a foreign land under foreign domination, under a foreign king with no army and no resources? Well, none. They had no hope except they had the promises of God. And God's resources are infinite and his promises are sure. And so when you think about it, they had everything they needed, right? They had God. And he used, God did, the most powerful man in the world to achieve his purposes. And so we could... Take the attitude, we could look at the world today, look at our leadership and say, it's hopeless. But it's not hopeless because we serve a sovereign God. Even though we live in a culture that is on a downward moral spiral and doesn't value the things that God values, uh, even though tolerance is admired, sin is celebrated, and just about anything goes, God is still God. He is still on his throne. He's still sovereign, so don't lose heart. He was in control of Cyrus. He's in control of our leadership today, and God will never leave us or forsake us, so be encouraged. And even though it seems like he's allowing a lot today, well, he is still sovereign, and God will one day make everything right. He will crush all opposition under Jesus' feet when he returns. And so as we close, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord God, we thank you uh, for these uh, introductory chapters to... Uh, the book of Ezra, Lord, and uh, I pray that we take the lessons that the Israelites learned about humility, Lord, and about humbling themselves before you, about self-examination, Lord, and instead of casting aspersions at the world, Lord, that we would look inside of ourselves first before we look outside. Lord, help us to understand that you desire uh, our purity and that we would be holy like you are holy, Lord, and if there's going to be revival, it starts with us. Lord, help us to learn these lessons. And we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins so that we might have salvation and be in heaven with you someday, Lord. We look forward to that day, and we ask that you hasten the day of Jesus' return. It's in Christ's precious name we ask. Amen.